Good morning. And um, hello to those of you who are watching this um, later online. Lovely to have you join us as well. You are a creator. Did you know that? We're more used to calling God the creator, right? And with good reason. God certainly creates in ways that we cannot. For example, we say God created the world out of nothing. Here's a bit of theological jargon for you. God creates ex nihilo. Now that assumes that God's eternal existence precedes all matter, which theologians debate, but we won't go into that. We humans, however, cannot create ex nihilo. Shall we give it a go? Try thinking a physical object into being. If you want, you know, something specific, try speaking the word chocolate <laughs> and see if any appears in front of you. That would be handy, right? God spoke the world into existence. So we don't create as God does. But nevertheless, we do create. What's more, we actually create in some ways that image God, despite the obvious differences. Chocolate. No, it's still not working. Okay. This morning, we're going to look at the creation account again from Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see two surprising ways that human beings image God as creators in their own right. The first is work, and the secondly, surprisingly, given what I've just said, is speech. First, a little more detail on how God creates. When God created the world, he didn't just speak things into existence, he then ordered them. For example, and God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Water and land are separated. Fish are then plonked in the water. Animals are placed on the land. The rhythm of day and night is established with the sun given its celestial job to do. Everything is put in its rightful place, including humanity. But then God does an interesting thing. He places man in the garden and gives him a job to do. We read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till and keep it. So guess what? Humanity also orders and creates. Now, Matthew translated man as humanity last week while dealing with the same passage, and that was fully appropriate. That's the um, NIV, the Newton International Version. And I, I want to assure you that I'm not sexist by sticking with man for now. I'm conscious that in the second account of creation, the woman has yet to appear, and we're going to look at naming the animals, and that relates to the woman you know, arriving later than the man. So that's just, that's just a choice I'm making in dealing with this text. Please forgive me if it implies sexism. It doesn't. Because the woman will join the man, and she too will tend the garden. Both will begin to order it. Biblical commentator Victor Hamilton says, There is no magic in Eden. Gardens cannot look after themselves. Does your garden look after itself? Gardens are not self-perpetuating. Man is placed there to dress and keep it. 
the words dress and keep are Hamilton's choice of translation. The Hebrew word for till or dress, abad, carries the sense of working and serving. Humankind works and serves in the world. The Hebrew word for keep, shormah, carries the sense of exercising great care over something. Think of something you exercise great care over. Humankind is therefore tasked with creating something ordered, beautiful, through carefully considered labor in the garden, the earth. Now let me pause here for a moment and dispel a myth that Christians sometimes mistakenly believe. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that sin made gardening and all other work a little bit less fun, to put it mildly. We read, Cursed is the ground because of you, said God to the man. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. It's not a pleasant picture of pottering in the garden. It's hard work. But for that reason, we sometimes mistakenly think that work, like, well, we think that, we know that work, sorry, like childbearing for the woman is a struggle. It involves pain. But then we make the mistake of thinking that work entered after the fall. That's not true. It didn't. One scholar commentating on life in the garden says it should be noted that even before the fall, man is expected to work. Paradise was not a life of leisured unemployment. Work is intrinsic to human life. And so work may feel like a curse, and indeed it is tiring, but don't curse the act of working itself nor seek to escape it in life. It's actually a God-given mandate. It's actually a blessing and a gift. Why? Because it's how we create. It's one of the ways we image God. And so we truly are creators. God could have done all the gardening, right? Or created a world that needed no care and cultivation. He didn't. He tasked us, us with that role, to work and serve and order and beautify the world in some small way, is to image God as many creators. That applies, of course, to every vocation. Medical professionals address disorders of the body and help order and create the conditions for good health. Teachers cultivate human minds and deal with the beauty of knowledge and its application to life. Engineers and builders create robust structures, roads, bridges, buildings that allow people to travel and congregate and put their feet up somewhere warm, except for Auckland Girls Grammar, and safe. All that constructing and ordering and educating and healing and child raising and entertaining and governing, all those myriad of vocations are engaged in something essentially creative. 
really love that call to worship that we have crafted for the series by uh, Josh Taylor. Poets, plumbers, parents, each one an artisan. What a lovely phrase. And so as you get up tomorrow and wade into your day, whatever it entails, maybe pause for a moment and ask yourself and God, what order and beauty shall I create today as I work and serve and exercise great care in some corner of this world. So then, firstly, the call to work with our hands and hearts and minds in the, in the world is the first sign in Genesis that we too are creators. Now for the second sign. We may not speak things into existence in quite the same way that God does. Ice cream. Sorry. No, creation ex nihilo today. And yet, surprisingly, we do actually create through speech because there is a second creative act that humanity performs in the garden in, Gen in this uh, Genesis 2 passage in addition to cultivating the garden. Listen carefully to the passage. And the band may like to come up at this point. So out of the ground... The Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the air, to every animal of the field. Newton and I were discussing, did the woman name any of the animals? And I decided the man probably just gave the generic names and the women, woman got specific and named you know, all the subspecies. And so she did a far more important job. Man performs, there's no biblical um, you know, grounds for that, but I'm just trying to protect myself from being run out of the building by the women. Okay. <laughs> Man performs the wonderfully creative and imaginative task of giving names to all the animals. Who's a Bob Dylan fan in this auditorium? Come on, admit it. You're allowed to admit it. Uh, I am. Very good. Um, Bob Dylan had some fun with this in his, on his 1979 album, Slow Train Coming. And the band have offered to play the first couple of verses and choruses of Man Gave Names to All the Animals. Enjoy this. Man gave names to all the animals in the beginning. In the beginning, man gave names to all the animals in the beginning. Long time ago, he saw an animal that liked to growl. A big a furry paws and he liked to have A great big furry back and furry hair oh, I think I call it a bear Oh man gave names to all the animals In the beginning In the beginning To all the animals in the beginning, 
a long time ago I saw an animal up on the hill Chewing up so much grass till she was filled I saw milk coming out but he don't know how oh, I think I'll call it a cow Everybody! <laughs> well done, you guys. Thank you very much. Bit of reggae, Dylan. Man gave names to all the animals. Good fun. It's a very playful song with quite a clever ending. It's, it's, not, it's not one of Dylan's most sophisticated songs, lyrically. <laughs> Kids love it, you know. It's very playful. Uh, but it ends quite cleverly. The last lines are, He saw an animal as smooth as glass. Slithering his way across the grass, he saw him disappear by a tree near a lake. As the listener, you're waiting for the obvious final lines, right? Ah, I think I'll call it a snake. But the song just abruptly ends without that last line. Dylan's backup singers would sometimes hiss at the end of the song to, to dramatically identify the serpent and the disruption of sin, right? God could have named the animals himself, just as he could have kept the garden, but he didn't. He gave that job to us. Now, the woman still hasn't turned up in this Genesis 2 narrative because the writer's having some fun here. But it's in naming the animals that man realizes, huh, there's not a companion among them that's suitable for me than the arrival of woman. However, I want to make it clear, the creative act of naming is not just a male prerogative. Women and men name all sorts of things, not least, of course, their children, sometimes with much negotiation and sometimes with an additional dose of creativity. Would you name your child Shelley with a dollar sign for an S? <laughs> uh, perhaps Shelley's parent or parents are hoping that she's destined for riches. Naming often falls, calls forth the character and the attributes of something. Shelley's probably a banker. Just as God speaks things into existence, so in a sense do we. We do actually create through our speech. I'm married to a teacher, and I know that's true. Ask any teacher who knows how to quietly sidle up to a struggling child in the classroom, or even a difficult one and whisper in the ear words like, you're clever, or would you like to help me to get them on side? And that teacher will tell you about the creative power of words. By naming, by speaking, we can help something flourish. We can give it life. We can facilitate healing. We can open up possibilities that didn't previously exist. And so to bless with our words is a life-giving creative act. Of course, the opposite is also true. To curse with our words is a destructive act. And you only need to sadly witness the damage done 
to the self-esteem of a child if a parent or a teacher consistently labels them negatively to know how harsh words can harm a soul. And so let me ask you, do your words carry life and create the conditions for flourishing, or do they diminish life and dampen the human spirit? You have creative power in your speech. Use it well. Now, is, man, is the man blessing the animals by giving them names as they file past him? That's a good question. Does a goat hear Adam say, goat, and think to itself, wow, I wondered what I was? <laughs> that man just gave me a much-needed sense of identity. <laughs> Perhaps not. <laughs> what Adam's doing and Eve, who also names, as we've said, what they're doing is exercising authority and dominion uh, that God has bestowed on them. And this is where we sometimes have a little trouble. And yet let's, um, let's remember that God did actually give authority and dominion to humanity. And Victor Hamilton says, for to confer a name is to speak from a position of authority and sovereignty. Ooh, we are many sovereigns. After creating humanity, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I say we have trouble with this because we get hung up on those quite uncomfortable words, subdue and dominion. And for good reason. Humanity has terrorized and exploited the world since the fall. But like it or not, we are many sovereigns on this earth. The question is not should we rule, but how should we rule? And we are supposed to consider the way that God rules, the great sovereign, the ruler of all the earth. And when we realize that God rules with love and justice, with care, with nurture, with protection, with grace, then that tells us what kind of rule we should exercise as God's vice regents. And so there's no point in denying the power that we have. We actually have immense power. We have the power to destroy the planet if we rule badly enough, we are supposed to use that power for creative good. Now it is sobering and disturbing to see what becomes of the human creative capacity once sin enters the picture. The Tower of Babel was no doubt a feat of genuine creativity and a marvel of engineering in the ancient world, but it was also a defiant attempt to reach the gods even to become gods. All that creative energy is poured into something ultimately blasphemous. Sin distorts the creative impulse in humanity. Human creativity tinged with sin takes a dark turn and then too often manifests itself as something destructive. War is perhaps the most obvious example of the misuse of human creativity. Humans have invented many creative ways to kill one another. And as images of the war from Ukraine and wars elsewhere remind us, killing is a gruesome act of destruction. 
Killing is actually a form of anti-creation. To take a life is to uncreate it. God abhors war and violence. Is it necessary sometimes to go to war? Maybe. I don't know. Is it good? Never. War violates God's image in human beings. It destroys rather than dignifies. It sows disorder, not order. It is ugly, not beautiful. It is the antithesis of all God intended us to do with our bestowed creativity and human freedom. And so faced with this dreadful record of misusing our creativity, we might wonder why God ever gave us such a gift in the first place. I think the answer is presumably because God chose not only to create us in his image, but part of that means we're given moral freedom to choose to conform to his character or not. And God has chosen to give us that choice. Moral freedom, coupled with the power to create, is a potent thing. It can be used for good and glorious ends. It can also be bent and applied to do great evil. Animals do not possess moral freedom. Some of you are thinking, that's not true. My dog looks decidedly guilty when it's been digging in the garden and stealing food. But sorry to to tell you, I don't think it's a moral conscience that it's exhibiting. It's, it probably fears punishment. Moral freedom, then, is a hallmark of humanity. Freedom to choose for or against that which gives life. Freedom to align our creativity with the character of God, to bless and serve and dignify and beautify, or to align ourselves with the evil one to deceive, to advance at the expense of others, to slander, to tear down, to sow chaos, to destroy. How do you use the moral freedom that God has given you as one who has the power to create and destroy, as a mini-sovereign who walks this earth? Does your work and speech image God? Now, I've been giving fairly obvious examples of the good use or the corrupt misuse of our freedom to create. But sometimes the choice, the choices we face as uh, creative beings are not so obvious or easily discerned. And I can offer you a current personal example of wrestling with my own creativity and trying to discern how best to use it. I've been in my role with the church for about six months now. And it's quite a varied role. I do some preaching, I do some support and development of the staff team, some strategic planning and partnership with Matthew and the team, various other bits and pieces. You'll be most familiar with my preaching role. And in this role, clearly I use the creative abilities that God has given me um, in a fulfilling way. It's still actually a lot of hard work, I can tell you. It's quite tiring pulling a sermon together. But then all creative work is hard, isn't it? I'll bet you your work is hard too. It actually rightly costs us something. That's part of our offering to the world, to God, to others, as we till and keep some corner of this earth. But it's the other parts of my job that I want to comment on. Behind the scenes, I've been struggling away 
trying to do what I feel is most helpful and needed in the organization in support of Matthew and the team. As a team, we're a fairly creative bunch. When I say we, perhaps you know, in some ways, at times more. Others than me, I don't think of myself as immensely creative. I'm now contradicting everything I've said in this sermon today. <laughs> you know what I mean. There's some very creative types on this team, and I don't always count myself as gifted and creative as they are. And as such, this team works in a somewhat organic way, to say the least. To my mind, it could do with a little more ordering. <laughs> I have German ancestry, so you can imagine, you know. <laughs> we're going to bring some order here. <laughs> so I go to work on it, and I've been intent on bringing some order. Um, and bringing order is one of the creative things we do that images God, right? Remember the garden? So I'm all up for this. I've been sweating it out, trying to bring a bit more order to something that looks and feels to me, if not at least to others, that it's actually always on the verge of reverting to a pre-creation state. <laughs> a formless void. <laughs> hey, what are you laughing about? <laughs> it's a hard job. No one quite seems to mind as much as I do that complete chaos is only five minutes away. And without Erica, our ops director, it's only one minute away. I'm not kidding. Ah, but guess what? Not everything I've tried to bring order to has responded the way I hoped. <laughs> and that fact has triggered a kind of mini crisis of confidence for me lately. I've been wondering whether I'm doing any good or just tiring, oh, thank you, thank you, Mary, or just tiring myself and others. While pondering all these existential questions lately, a friend asked me a question that felt quite liberating. They asked this. They said, what kind of vocational lifestyle does Jim want to create for himself? And then they asked, what kind of vocational lifestyle does God have for Jim? Those two questions are, of course, related. We were talking about um, how I could discern the best ways to use my gifts and abilities to serve others in the most effective and fulfilling way. It was the wording of my friend's question that caught my attention, questions. The word lifestyle could sound self-serving, but it wasn't meant, meant that way, and I didn't hear it that way. It had a ring of freedom to it, the freedom to choose to use my gifts one way or another in the service of God and others. And the word create just leapt out at me. It's such a positively loaded word. It helped me feel empowered to experiment. If this isn't working, try that. If you may not be suited to this, try, try that in your role. And so I thought I have the freedom to tinker with my approach to ministry and leadership, to try something new rather than feel frustrated or a bit despondent. My friend's words actually prompted a rethink around what I was attempting to do in my role with the church. Now, I've been in various Christian leadership and ministry roles since my early 20s, and in most cases, they've come with a mix of teaching, mentoring, or team development and management responsibilities. Of that mix, guess which most gives me life and most gives life to others. Predominantly teaching, mentoring, the development of people. Now, 
I'm an experienced and competent enough manager, but actually I felt God tap me on the shoulder many, many years ago uh, when I was a Youth for Christ director in the Nelson region and lead me away from organizational management and more towards um, teaching, coaching, mentoring. And so it's been humbling for me uh, to realize lately that maybe I've drifted back into some forms of work that uh, don't ultimately suit me. Maybe I've wandered off and I'm tilling and keeping some corner of the garden that's not exactly mine to till and keep. Maybe I'm naming things that aren't mine to name. Now, I recognize that not everyone has the freedom to choose the bits of the job that they feel most aligned with their gifts or play to their strengths. Neither do I entirely, but I really honor uh, Newt and the Governance Committee at the church because uh, we're rethinking where I focus some of my energy. But my point is that even with a high degree of flexibility to shape my role this way or that, I may still have been misdirecting some of my creative calling, playing many sovereign and domains that weren't necessarily mine to play in. And so perhaps the task then of engaging our creativity, your creativity, in the service of God and others is the, is the courage to recognize what gifts God has given you, what gifts God has given me, and to fully own them, and then to see if we can focus the use of them Henri Nouwen and Annie Dillard, Dillard speak of living according to one's necessity. What they mean by that is one's drive or desire that is unique to each person, something that brings you joy when you do it, something that brings life to the world when you do it, and only you can do it. And so what impulse do you have to shape the world? What must you do to live a joyful life of service to God and others? And in the language of Genesis, what are you called to till and to name? You have God-given freedom, moral freedom, and with it an invitation to bring beauty, truth, and goodness to the world in a creative way that no one else quite can. And so let me end by putting the same question to you that my friend put to me, just worded a little more broadly. What use of your creative gifts do you and God want to explore together? Shall I pray for us? Yeah. Lord God, it's a marvel to be made a little lower than the angels, to be mini-sovereigns, in this domain, the earth that you've given to us. We've made a complete mess of it, Lord. But in Christ, we can renew and redeem it. We can partner with you. But we can only do so, God, if we can own and celebrate and recognize the glorious gifts that you have given us. And if we can work with and walk with your spirit to till and keep the right corner of it to name the right things, and to appreciate that others are called to till and keep and name, each in their own way. Thank you, Lord, that you made us actually as creative beings. Thank you, Lord, that you called us to shape and order and beautify the world. May we draw near to you 
so that we can be excited about that prospect and enter into the creative work that you have called each of us to. Lead us there, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.